Okay, hello everybody and welcome to Investing with IBD for October 9th, 2019. I'm your host, Arusha Pearson. With me today is David Keller, Chief Market Strategist at StockCharts.com and President of Sierra Alpha Research. Thanks for being here, David. Absolutely. Good to join you, Arusha. On today's podcast, we will talk about the current markets, how learning to fly can help you with investing, and current stocks. So let's get into the current market. Right now, the market is under pressure. We have six distribution days on the NASDAQ and seven on the S&P 500. It's been a choppy market for the last few months, and the indices are below the 50-day moving average. David, what are your thoughts on the market? Yeah, I mean, overall, I've definitely been leaning more cautiously than optimistic in general. Um, a number of reasons why I think that's the case. Uh, you know, number one, just purely uh, for me, the, the the broad market environment is all about the the broader trend. And for me, it's about capturing the highs and the lows. And are we making successive higher highs or successive lower lows? And what we've seen recently is the, you know, the S&P after selling off in August, September comes a push higher and, uh, you know, did not eclipse that previous high from July. Um, and so that's the first thing. Just at a very simplistic level, you know, we we, we haven't been able to to push higher uh, after the after the July peak. Now that on its own isn't horribly negative, but I think when you look below the hood a little bit, that's when it gets a little more concerning. So two things that stand out to me, I would say, number one is just in terms of the overall market breadth. So one of the things I'll look at is the percent of S and P 500 stocks above their 200-day moving averages and also above their 50-day moving average. Okay. And it's just a way of looking at you know across hundreds of companies how many of them are in an uptrend or a downtrend based on those sort of long-term smoothing mechanisms. And what I've seen recently is on the last three peaks of the S and P 500, there have been less stocks going back above their 50-day moving average. So as the market goes to a new reaction higher, tries to push higher less and less stocks are recovering their 50-day, which I know for the IBD, that's something I've always followed reading the, the newspaper about, something that you look for is sort of that, that pullback point. Right. And so the fact that stocks have been unable to eclipse that less and less on each, uh, on each up move in the, in the S&P is a little uh, cause for concern for me. Um, and then the second thing I would say is just in terms of sector rotation. So one of the key ratios I like to look at is the performance of consumer discretionary stocks versus consumer staple stocks. So overall, on the more offensive side of consumer versus defensive side of consumer, are we rotating more to offense versus defense? And what we're seeing right now is, again, as the market overall has held up okay with some distribution days, but overall not horrible, kind of sideways for the last couple months, that ratio has actually rolled over, meaning uh, you know the better charts on average are in consumer staples versus consumer discretionary. Those That's where the setups are. So as that ratio goes lower, makes me feel less and less encouraged about long-term health of, uh, of the broader equity space in the U.S. Yeah, I, I, we, we've definitely felt it when we're, we're investing in growth stocks or the IVD 50 and a lot of other of these game-changing companies. We felt it over the last few months uh, with a number of these stocks have just kind of obliterated. And probably the, the more frustrating thing is that the indexes have been holding up. You're like, wait, the indexes are holding up and all of our stocks are just blowing up. But that's how it sometimes works. They, they'll knock out these faster-moving stocks, move the money to some of the more defensive plays, and then maybe the market can kind of pull out of it. Or sometimes then the market starts to roll over, too. So it's a really, really good point. And I think you see that in a number of ways. You know, number one, what I've always loved about IBD when I've used it is the fact that it's a bottom-up process, right? So you have the market overview, but you're really looking at individual stocks, how they're moving, where they're at, where the leadership is. 
And to your point, I think a lot of individual stocks, if you forget about the broad S&P chart and you just look at a bunch of individual names and every weekend I go through the entire S&P 500. And for me, I'm not seeing a lot of exceptionally good charts. Yeah. <laughs> I'm seeing a lot of okay charts and I'm seeing some charts that are looking really challenged. And that's a rotation from you know earlier in the phase when things are kind of long and strong up and to the right, the average stock looks pretty good. And I think at this point, the average stock looks a lot less attractive. I, I think the second point maybe as a follow-up is uh, if you look at breadth in the form of the mid-cap and the small-cap indexes versus the broad S&P, right? If you yes. look at something like the cumulative advanced decliners or some measure of overall strength of each of those, the S&P 500 or even the mega-caps are where you've still seen consistent strength. And, and to your point, I think that speaks to maybe a move to more defensive, big mega cap names that are still holding up fine. But if you look at small caps, if you look at mid caps, they've nowhere near hung up, uh, hung in as well as some of the uh, some of the larger names. And that, to me, speaks to uh, more of a cautious perspective than uh, an optimistic perspective. Exactly. We, we want those mid caps and small caps to do well because there's more risk coming in the market, more speculation coming in the market, and especially right. for IBD type of stocks. Those are, those are the growth stocks and they're rewarded. So, David, let's get into how you got started. And and I was just t talking to you right before we started here. I mean, it, the the things you've done are, are pretty amazing. It's, it's great. It's a whole variety of stuff. Uh, you started out as a classically trained musician, which is awesome, at Ohio State. How did you get into investing after going down that track? Really good question. And uh, so, yeah, I studied music and psychology as an undergrad at Ohio State. And while that sounds like a really unrealistic uh, a way to get into the financial industry, it actually worked really well. Um, so I started at the industry uh, in Bloomberg in New York. And uh, basically, they took a lot of liberal arts majors, a lot of uh, finance and econ majors, kind of put us in a big room together. And we sort of helped each other learn you know, all about the markets, but you know, the liberal arts guys, we sort of taught the others how to speak and how to ask questions and how to listen and sort of those softer skills. Yeah. And what's funny is as I was learning all the different parts of investing, learning fundamental analysis and bond math and economics and the Fed and so forth, the first time I saw a chart, it felt like something I'd been doing for years. Because as a musician, you look at a piece of music, and especially like an orchestral score with a lot of different parts, and you're looking for patterns, you're looking for agreement and disagreement, you're looking for convergences and divergences musically, and also you use your knowledge of musical theory and history to make an assumption of what's going to come next. So when I learned you could use charts to make those same sort of uh, evaluations, it, it, it felt like I'd actually been trained to do it. So I've reminded my father no, no, no uh, small number of times that my music degree has paid off in my ability to analyze the markets, hopefully. And then with psychology, I've, I've used that psychology degree, I feel like, uh, every day because, you know, I think the goal as an investor is to get inside the head of all the other investors and what motivates them, what's causing them emotionally to make decisions. And so thinking of uh, investor psychology and sentiment in those ways has always uh, steered me in the right way. Yeah. And, and also with the psychology perspective, too, is also managing your own psychology. That That's a huge thing for individual investors. You have to manage yourself through the, the ups and downs because there are a lot of times where it's easy to quit. You want to quit, but you have to pick yourself back up and learn from those mistakes. <laughs> it's true. And I wish I could tell you that once you get to a certain level of understanding of behavioral finance and psychology, you don't have those problems anymore. But yeah. the bad news is I've studied it for years and years. I've taught it at the at the uh, university level and I still fall victim to the same uh, same yes. biases. So yeah. I think having an awareness and an understanding of it is the starting point, building good routines and good habits to sort of minimize 
the Im- impact of emotions, I think, is what really sets aside the the really capable investors from the struggling investors. So hopefully your listeners are able to, to do that. Definitely. Uh, and and then you, you you so you were at Brandeis as a as a professor there adjunct professor there right uh, and, and then you ended up at Fidelity uh, managing sure. the the technical analyst group and I, I, when I was at Fidelity I had a chance one time to kind of sneak into the <laughs> chart room and and I quickly I was amazing I was like flipping through these huge charts because I just heard <laughs> about this chart room. And sure. uh, and then finally got kicked out. But you got his, you got you got to go there and hang out all all the time and and talk to Ned Johnson and uh, you know yeah. and talk with all the PMs and everything like that. Yeah, I would say one of the most stressful recurring meetings I had in my time at Fidelity was walking through the Fidelity chart room with the chairman. We did it about every three to six weeks there when I got started, and it was one of the most stressful meetings. I eventually would have one of my analysts with me, and we. We just tag team because one of us always had to be looking things up on our laptop or something on the side because he would ask these really brutally deep, thoughtful questions about sector rotation and market history and leadership and laggardship and, and just what sort of signals we can be paying attention to. Um, but the chart room, as you, as you mentioned, is just this beautiful physical space dedicated to market history and visualization. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and it was a fascinating experience just to think, take a step back from the short-term flickering ticks of the markets and really think about the long-term trends, which, you know, again, in, in reading IBD, I think the, you know, thinking of the big picture, that's always been one of the things I've enjoyed the most is taking a step back from the short-term movements, really understanding the long-term trends and everyone should, should keep that in mind for sure. Now, one thing you did on the side was you you were the president of the CMT Association. Now you're a CMT, I'm a CMT, uh, yep. and it's it's pretty cool. I was talking to a number of the people at the CMT yesterday. How how much that the the organization organization has grown over the last ten yes. years? How, how was that? What was uh, how was that time uh, when when you're leading the group? Totally fair. So I joined the board in 2007, if I remember right. Now I was president from 2010 to 2014, and at that point we really sort of focused on the growth of the organization from more of a smaller organization to a larger organization. And I would say two things that stand out of my time there, you know, number one was, you know, really redesigning a lot of the structures that we had in place. If you think about a, a small company growing into a large company, there's all these things you have to keep in mind in terms of, you know, putting the systems in place to allow you to grow effectively. And so it was a lot of restructuring committees and how we think about volunteers and, and everything, which was really, really a, a good exercise. The second thing was just global growth. So, yeah. you know, when I was president, I would say a third of our members were outside the U.S. out of about 4,500 members. Um, and, at, and, and at the time, about two thirds of our new members were coming from outside the U.S. And it was in Europe, a lot in India, a lot in uh, mainland China. And so trying to understand how our organization should be more globally minded um, brought a lot of challenges, but a lot of really good benefits. It was it was good connecting with our members across the world and just thinking about how we're all trying to do the same sorts of things. The charts look the same anywhere you, anywhere you're at, but the cultural differences and the differences in the transparency of the markets and just how you trade stocks and just all the trans, uh, participants and how they uh, relate to each other were all very different. So you know, thinking as a global investor, it's not as easy as just thinking, all right, I'm going to buy some stocks outside the U.S. You really have to think about uh, the different markets, the different uh, economies, the different geopolitical risks and how they all relate. So that was a really good learning experience, I think, personally and, and professionally, but also just for the organization. It was a great growth period for sure. Perfect. And and for those of you who aren't aware, uh, CMT stands for Chartered Market Technician. And, and so it's kind of like CFA, except for those who love charts, who, those who love technicals. And 
uh, I learned a ton go, going through that process. So, and it's it's a great great organization. Mm-hmm. So the the indices continue to be choppy. And so for right now, be cautious, play defense, and wait for that fat pick. So let's take a quick break. But when we return, we're going to learn how flying a plane can help you in the stock market. Stay tuned. Hey, guys, if you really enjoy listening to the podcast every week, we'd love it if you could rate and review the show on iTunes. Your review and ratings really help out the show, and we would love to get your feedback. Thanks so much for listening. David Keller is our guest on Investing with IBD. Okay, David, here's another thing that you're doing that's really interesting. You are a student pilot, right? Yeah, that's right. So let's talk about how learning to fly a plane can help everyone with investing. Sure. So I have about 80 hours in a Cessna 172R, which is a pretty classic training uh, airplane. That's how a lot of people learn with the sort of traditional dials and, and everything. And I first sort of thought about the comparisons on my first flight uh, above uh, Boston, which is where I spent a lot of my, my time there. And as we were flying around my instructor, we started talking about stocks. And it turns out that when he wasn't flying an airplane, he would trade stocks on his own time when he was uh, when he was on the ground. And so we talked a lot when, uh, you know, when the pl- plane uh, planes flying straight level. There's not a lot to do sometimes. So we talk about the markets and talk about stock picking. And we very quickly found the relationship between what we were doing with the airplane and our other conversations about stocks. And if you think about it, it's funny, a lot of the language that we use to describe stock movements really comes from flying things like crashes and taking off and glide paths and, and stalling. Uh, you know, all of these are visual representations that come from, you know, a plane's ability to to fly or not fly. And so when I designed my uh, research firm called Sierra Alpha Research, that actually comes from aviation. So okay. Sierra Alpha is slang for situational awareness. And that basically means when you're flying an airplane, uh, you need to have an awareness of what's going on inside and outside the cockpit. And a quick story on why that became so important to me to the point that I wanted to name my firm after it. The first night flight I had, so we're flying over uh, outside of Boston, middle of the night, and and you do that just to get comfortable with uh, visually. It's very confusing because there are lights on the ground, there are stars in the sky, it's hard to see the horizon. Right. So you have a whole set of skills you need to learn. And all of a sudden I saw some lights that looked like they were kind of getting bigger and not moving. And you're taught that if lights aren't moving, that means it's either coming right at you or going away from you. But either way, you want to be familiar with what's happening. So my, uh, my, my uh, instructor said, do you see those lights? And I said, yes. And he said, well, they're not moving, which means it's probably coming right at you. And sure enough, we could see a plane that was in a direct uh, path to intercept our airplane in about 30, uh, 30 seconds. Wow. And so he said, wow. all right, we're going to just get out of the way. And he pushed on the yoke real quick, took us about 500 feet down. We went underneath the other airplane and that never deviated. They just went right in the same way. So had we not changed our course of direction, they would have uh, hit us and the flight would have ended prematurely. Seriously. And it was a great lesson on, I was very caught up on the map. I was caught up of, uh, of, of a lot of distractions. And he pointed out that you always want to have an awareness of what's happening outside the airplane. So for me, I always try to coach investors, advisors that I that I coach, you know, have a good awareness of what's going on outside of your portfolio, outside of your narrow uh, focus, because a lot of times that's when it's going to help you find opportunities and also minimize risk the uncertain things that could come out of nowhere that you're not prepared for yeah and 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 right there that that you're falling back to a set of rules too 
there there wasn't a lot of time to think oh what should i do you just kind of have to go with what you're trained or 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 listen to your coach you're saying okay you you see those lights here's a learning lesson now in this situation we 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 get out of the way we're not going to wait till till it's too late at that point yeah you know emergency preparedness when you're flying it's all about routines and it's all about having a list of steps that you take and it is not an emotional decision it is a very systematized decision uh, and another example is when I'm when I was learning to, uh, you know, learning to fly, we're sort of flying the first thing that the instructor does. He yanks out the throttle all the way and says, all right, you just lost your engine. Now, what do you do? And the first time that happens when you're flying, it's it's a complete panic <laughs> because yeah, yeah. your your heart goes up into your throat. You start sweating. The plane just jerks down all of a sudden and, and it feels very uncomfortable. And so while this is happening, while you're losing altitude, you're finding this paper checklist and you're trying to make sure that you follow all these emergency steps and it's a disaster. And luckily the instructor's there to make sure that it's safe, but it's it's very difficult. You 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 have an emotional reaction to it. But months later, we did after after training a lot of times, he did the same thing. And I'm sort of, you know, uh, yawning as I go through this checklist and just you already know the steps. It's yeah. you follow these step, seven steps and 95% of the time it corrects your your problem. And so what you learn is when something bad happens, when it's uncomfortable, it should not be an emotional decision. It is a very uh, systematic, very objective decision. And you have a series of steps that you follow. And as investors, it's so funny when the market does something we're not expecting, when it goes against our positioning, we often uh, react in a, on a state of fear, right? Fear yep, drives exactly. our decisions to, you know, to, to exit a position prematurely or to, you know, sell or buy something we shouldn't. And having a routine, having a set of steps that you're going to follow ahead of time is so crucial for investors. And I, and I, I often try to try to help people sort of unpack what those steps should be for them. Yeah, I, I had a chance one, one time a number of years ago. It was actually in Boston. Uh, one of my friends had a Cessna. We, we, we went up. We flew to Albany, New York uh, over there. And uh, the checklist, it, it, we, before we yep. got into the plane, before we, we, we moved the plane, we went around the plane, checked for everything, the whole checklist, checked to see if the wings have holes in it and all this kind of stuff, right? right? Uh, and, and it was amazing how many different things you check. And, and then when you're starting it, you yell out that, hey, I'm starting the plane, or you say something that everyone nearby knows you're starting the plane. Uh, and I, I, he also let me, when we were in the air, he let me fly the plane where you know nothing really bad could happen, but I have never been more scared in my life. Uh, just fly, <laughs> we couldn't hit anything, but I was just like, he all he told me to do was just look at the gauges, right? Just. Don't worry That's about right. anything. Just look at the gauge. Just make sure it's level here and stuff like that. And and so yes. uh, a, a lot of times that's also kind of like in the market, right? You're looking at gauges. You have to trust those instruments. And then when one thing happens, you do this. If something else happens, you do that. And and you just go down yep. to just following those rules. That's exactly right. Uh, one of my mentors, Tom Dorsey, was a military pilot, and he shared with me a, a great story about basically landing in the completely wrong place. And so he was flying and doing a training flight uh, in Texas, um, inadvertently ended up across the border into Mexico and landed in the wrong place and saw a body of water. And even though he looked at his instruments, which told him he was in a certain location, he just started looking around, getting really nervous and, and disoriented and basically decided that was the ocean. And that means this is the right airport. And of course, he landed in a field in Mexico and and all sorts of bad things happened after that moment. And and his lesson to me is that you have to trust your instruments, right? Don't, yep. you know, as investors, a lot of times we look around, all of a sudden we build a narrative. We start sort of coming up with all these reasons why something should or shouldn't happen. And we convince ourselves to do something we shouldn't. 
because we're trying to make ourselves feel better about this emotional state that we're in. And you have to have a, number one, you have to have a good amount of information, a good dashboard, a good set of data that you can follow. Um, and so, you know, a, again, I, I think you're fortunate if you're, you know, using something like IBD, you've got all the, all the tools in front of you. You just have to build a good routine for assessing where we're at, understanding how things are moving and making sure that you have a routine, a discipline to follow and, and internalize and understand all those signals. Don't make an emotional judgment based on what you think could or should happen. Uh, you know, make an assessment based on the evidence, based on the information that you, that you have in front of you as part of a good, solid process. Yeah. And, and you had a, a great story about a, a Top Gun instructor, uh, you, you know. Why, why don't you share yes. that? I think that was a really good lesson, too. Yeah. So you mentioned checklists. And I, that's, that is one of the most striking comparisons, I think, between flying and between aviation and investing. And it's so funny when I taught uh, uh, students at Brandeis University, as you mentioned, I would teach them a checklist. So at the very first class, here is the first step on your checklist to identifying whether or not you want to buy a stock. And by the end of the semester, we had built out an eight step process based purely on technical analysis, helping them identify. And it starts with, you know, what is the trend in that individual chart? And then are, you know, looking at moving averages and trends and indicators, confirmation, volume, relative performance, all these sort of things that in the end give you a good holistic view. But you do it as a checklist. You have earned the right to be bullish or bearish or buy and sell a stock by answering all those questions. And until you answer those questions, you don't have the right to answer it. And uh, and, and the story you referred to with with, a, with another mentor of mine, Greg Morris, who's a Top Gun instructor, a really successful military pilot. And had a great career flying for Delta. He always he said that the ch answers on the checklist, all those items on those checklists, sadly came from uh, accidents. Right, there was a, an accident that caused each one of those items to be added to the checklist. So when you're going through and checking every piece of the airplane, checking all the instruments, checking all the power settings, and making sure everything's going to operate correctly, that is based on pilot experiences and making right. sure that the plane is going to operate how you need it to. Um, and what's what's funny is you will never find a pilot, even someone who's been flying for thousands of hours. They still just like you would on your first flight up. They go through that checklist manually and they literally check each item off visually with a touchscreen, with a piece of paper or something to make sure that they do it. So it's funny, the longer you invest, a lot of times bad habits can creep into your process. And I would always tell you the best thing you can do is lay out a checklist, whether it's a written checklist, whether it's on a an Excel sheet. Or, or something, have a way that you systematically review all the inputs that you want to follow for a stock. Yeah, and in the same way as, as uh, the, the story from the, the Top Gun instructor, it's the same thing with all those rules in stocks. There, there's a reason we cut our losses pretty quickly. Now, and especially in IBD, IBD, we have all these rules. Uh, and I had to break all of those rules multiple times to finally <laughs> realize, oh, that's why that's a rule. I'd ride stocks down like 80%. Like, oh, yes. wow, it's really hard to recover from a big loss like that, right? <laughs> I, I mean, it took me a long time to, to really get this, but it's the same way. These rules are really there for a reason, but you have to, uh, you know, sometimes you have to put your hand on the stove to, to learn the significance of those rules. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love the saying, all large losses begin as small losses. Yes. And I think the IBD methodology has a great way to take profits or, or exit out of a, of a trade that's starting to not work. And, you know, I've always thought of like the 8% rule. If something moves 8% against you, you get out. You don't second guess it. You don't question why. You just do it because all 50% losses start as an 8% loss yes. earlier on in the trend. So having a rule that you get out and live to invest another day, I that's that's one of the best money management lessons I think you can you can internalize for sure. Absolutely. 
So the process is the same whether you're flying a plane or investing in the markets. You need a plan, patience, and of course, discipline. Coming up next, David and I will talk about three stocks that are hanging around in this current market. Stay tuned. Want to find stocks like the ones on this podcast? A lot of the best names we talk about come from IBD's exclusive stock list, like the IBD 50 and the Big Cap 20. Whatever type of investor you are, we got a list for you. You can access every one of IBD's lists, plus stock ratings, exclusive analysis, and one-on-one coaching with a membership to IBD Digital. It costs less than a dollar a day, but for podcast listeners, we're offering an even better price. Go to investors.com slash podcast offer right now and get your first two months for only $20. We are back with David Keller on investing with IBD. So, David, let's get into some current stocks that are hanging around and hanging out pretty well in this market. Now, the first stock is AT&T. And of course, we have the whole 5G trend and, and these guys are well positioned to, to benefit off of that. Uh, and AT&T also actually, you know, they, they acquired DirecTV last year. So they're, they've been doing a lot of consolidation. Uh, what, what do you see in this stock? Why, why do you like this stock? You know, it's an interesting uh, play. It's, it's a defensive play, but also not. I mean, it's sort of uh, it's a defensive play with uh, with more of an offensive mindset, if that if that even makes sense. Right. It has the traditional telecom feel. AT&T Verizon were sort of the, the two big names in the old telecom sector, which has now been rotated into communication services. So, uh, you know, overall, that creation of a communication services sector that a lot of uh, you know, institutional investors had to pay attention to uh, was was a really interesting, I think, time to start thinking about AT&T. And, and really in the last six to 12 months, it's rotated very nicely from more of a distributive phase to more of an accumulation phase. Right. And I like the fact that it's been in a consistent uptrend. You know, if you didn't know that the market was kind of having trouble, the chart of AT&T really wouldn't reflect that. It's held up very nicely, um, really hasn't broken to a new swing low, uh, even as a lot of other names have. It's it's had its uh, it's had its sell-offs, but overall has uh, held it very nicely. I really appreciate the relative strength uh, uh, there, and I, I like the relative performance. It's outperformed uh, the S and P very very well. But the kicker to the entire thing, besides the play on five G, besides the um, the uh, the defensive opportunity, it's the dividend yield. Okay. So in a case when you know most yields are low and getting lower, this is something that at times is all I had. You know, a six six and a half percent yield. It's probably down to about five and a half percent now. Right. Um, but overall, it's a really healthy dividend. So it's a it's a good source of income at a time when when that's actually pretty hard to find. So overall, it's setting up very very nicely, and the fact that you could get it. Uh, after a bit of a pullback right here between now and the 50-day moving average seems actually pretty compelling. Yeah, and, and talking about that pullback, really the last four or five weeks, it's gone really tight. We, we usually call this a three weeks tight. It, it looks like more four or five weeks tight uh, right. on the chart. Um, but it, it, it's pretty amazing. It has it, it, That's during a time where the market's been really, really choppy. And then and, right. and you see the stock just kind of going sideways and... Uh, yeah, institutions are selling a lot of other things, and they're like, you know what? Maybe let's just grab a little more AT and T. Let's park a little bit more money there. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to put myself on the, you know, put your portfolio manager cap on, and if you think you have a lot of assets, if and when the market does start to get more and more challenged, you have to put your money somewhere. And a stock like AT and T with a good dividend yield that's going to generate at least some return guaranteed, uh, pretty compelling defensive play for sure. Yep. Okay, let's go to the second stock, and this mm-hmm. is Pulte. 
Pulte Homes, uh, ticker symbol PHM. They're a home builder, and you know we, we, we've spoken about this a little bit before, You know, looking a lot of charts to get a gauge on the market. And one thing that I've noticed yep. over the last few weeks is there are a lot of home builders that have been doing quite well uh, during this choppy market. That's exactly right. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, every weekend I go through the entire S&P 500, every, you know, chart by chart and just look for themes, look for stories. And again, as much as you want to look at the broad market, which I definitely would encourage you to do, it also helps to look at the individual stock level and see what sort of patterns emerge. And just as you said, over the last four or five, six weeks, home builders consistently, they pop up, look at Pulte Homes. It could also be Lennar. It could be another name in the group. Right. All of a sudden, the patterns just start to look really good. And if you, again, if you didn't know that the market has been really choppy over the last couple of weeks, you certainly wouldn't know that by looking at a chart of uh, PHM. It's sort of a long and strong, continued performer up and to the right. The relative strength has been fantastic. Yes. Uh, and again, assuming you're familiar with the, with the IBD work, I mean, the uh, composite score, pretty strong. I mean, I think it's up in the 95 plus percentile yep. on the composite rating. So overall, it's, it sets up really, really nicely here. Yeah, it, it broke out a few weeks ago out of a flat base. It's a little extended now, 8% from that pivot. Uh, so this is one you want to keep on the watch, just wait for a pullback. But what's kind of amazing is this stock has stayed above its 10-day moving average for like a month. It's just been really nicely trending up. The RS rating, as you mentioned before, is is a 95. So it, it, it's sticking out uh, really nicely, and more and more money seems to be coming into the the home builders. Their industry rank is two out of 197. So Fantastic. yeah, so so that there, there's all there's a lot going on here, and. In the end, it's always relative strength, right? These choppy markets, corrections, they always give us the opportunity to see, okay, what stocks are holding up the best? And and a lot of times when the market comes around, goes back in an uptrend, those are the ones that could be the next leaders of the market. That's exactly right. And, and I think to your point, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it feels a little extended here, which is totally fair. In general, I mean, the sweet spot may be more like the AT&T chart, if you're thinking just purely of the chart. I mean, right. I, I tend to like things that have a strong long-term trend, but have pulled back to a viable point, right? Pulled back to where you'd feel comfortable accumulating a little more. And so with home builders, I think, you know, some sort of pullback could, you know, you could consider it fairly, fairly viable. Um, you know, it's also noteworthy if you just look at the, you know, something like the RSI, a measure of momentum, something like Pulte Homes and some of the other home builders have become overbought and then remained up in that overbought region for a little while here. So the trend has actually been pretty consistently positive, which is uh, which is worth noting. Yeah. And it looks like it also made a uh, at least a, a new high in the last couple of years, almost a couple of years. But it might be also I wonder if it's an all time. high. I'm just switching over to a, a monthly chart. Uh, mm -hmm. Not not necessarily an all time high, but it's starting to get a little close to that. But it, it has been a. Uh, a new high in at least uh, like 10 years <laughs> or so. So, so that's bad, significant, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, you know, what, what are your thoughts on monthly charts? Do you like to look at, at those two to get a, a longer term perspective? Yeah. So my go-to, I mean, if I had nothing else, I would look at like a five-year weekly chart. That's sort of my starting point. Okay. And then I like to look at a, at a monthly chart and a daily chart to sort of complement that. And for me, what I always tell people, it, it, it should all be based on your investment horizon. So if you're a long-term investor and you're looking three, six, 12 months down the road or more, I think a weekly chart is probably the good starting point. Yeah. But you, the monthly chart can be really helpful for helping you understand how that trend, how that five-year period relates to the longer-term trend, the really secular trends. And that's where some of the 
you know, something like home builders, understanding that they're breaking to a new all time high. The monthly chart is where you really start to sort of make sense to that. And then also the daily chart is really helpful too, even if you're not a short term investor, just to understand the tactical movements and the mean reversion on that shorter time frame can just help you get in at a better level a lot of times. Perfect. Let's go to the final stock here. And this is Nike. And obviously, yeah, these guys have a, a strong brand name. They're a marketing powerhouse. Uh, and and this is also a stock that we, we've spoken about before on the podcast because it just keeps coming up on the radar. They, they, they continue to uh, show some good relative strength. Uh, what, what, what are you seeing here, David? Yeah, so I've recently, as I told you when we when we spoke last, I, I moved from the Midwest out to the Pacific Northwest. So I have to represent my new uh, region <laughs> with with a good uh, Northwest company here I with like Nike. It. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's just been a consistent winner, right? And and uh, you know we often thought at Fidelity, what you know, what types of charts would you label a long term winner? Kind of that name that just seems to continue to work. And I, you know, things that come to mind are like Starbucks when it just was in this consistent multi year uptrend. And Nike is just one of those stocks that just keeps working, right? If you yeah. if you screen for good growth names, you know, more often than not, a stock like Nike tends to pop up there. Um, a lot of good fundamental reasons, but I think technically you have a chart that's broken to new price highs. And I love the consolidation that we saw over the last six months. You had this rally up to the 88 to 90 level, um, you know, sold off, had this sort of consolidation pattern over the last six months, and then finally gapped out, uh, broke to new highs, and has now remained above uh, above that that breakout level. So that 90 price point is probably the, the key level I'd be looking for. As long as we rain, remain above there, this is in a really good, a really good phase uh, in the short term. And just on the relative basis, new relative highs, new price highs. It's, you know, if I had a portfolio of names that look kind of like this, I'd probably feel pretty comfortable about uh, about the overall positioning. Yeah, and and on, on the weekly chart, this is this might be the third week that it's going tight here. So you might get a three weeks tight. It's holding up really well after uh, its breakout uh, from the flat base. So it's just nice and steady. One, one of these stocks that, for the most part, you haven't had a to worry about uh, too too long. Now you mentioned a really interesting with a really interesting point at Fidelity about looking for these mm -hmm. kind of long term kind of plays right there. Now, did they yeah. usually come to that conclusion or find those ideas through the long-term charts or was it more a fundamental kind of story or was a combination of both? Yeah, so, I mean, we we try to slice things a lot of different ways, but this was based purely on the charts. So we tried to find stocks that we consider long-term winners based on their price performance. So these were names that just continued to work over longer periods of time, um, consistently would, would break out. Um, when they did pull back, it was sort of a it was a reasonable pullback. It wasn't anything uh, complicated, anything uh, anything too volatile, too noisy. Uh, but just names, sort of you'd consider them maybe core positions from a technical perspective. Just yeah. things that continue to work that you can you can invest around, but they're the ones that you'd want to build your portfolio around. And and again, Nike. If you look at the last you know six or seven years, it's kind of fit that kind of fit that profile pretty well. Yeah, and and I think another good example is during this whole China trade wars. Uh, hmm. Nike survived it pretty well, and, and they're heavily exposed over there. And uh, well, they, they... yeah, and it's a, it's a really good point. I, and and again, I I don't want to suggest that people don't pay attention to the fundamental stories. Absolutely. And and my yeah. background as a technical analyst was always to give the technical component as part of a more holistic way of thinking about a, a stock. And I think to your point, it is great, right? How has Nike done in the face of all the you know China issues and and trade trade deal and and, and so forth? And again, for me, that's reflected in the price. The fact that the price has held up so well in the face of all this other noise, 
tells you that the story is kind of working and, and, and at the very least, investors are treating it like it's working. And that's what I'm most encouraged by. People are voting with their feet, voting with their money and putting it in stocks like Nike. And that's probably where I'd want to be more often than not. Perfect. So there are three stocks that continue to hang in there really well during this choppy market. Thanks, David, for joining us today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure, Arusha. Thank you. That's it for this week on Investing with IBD. Next week, we will have Andrew Horowitz, president of Horowitz and Company. And also, he's the host of the Disciplined Investor podcast. So that's it. I'm Arusha Paris, and thanks for listening. And for this week's notes and charts, make sure to go to investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments. This podcast is for informational and educational